Our text this morning is Nehemiah chapter 12, verses 27 through 47. And as I read the word of God this morning, I would invite you to stand as you're able out of reverence for God's word. Nehemiah chapter 12, starting at verse 27. And at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought the Levites in all their places to bring them to Jerusalem to celebrate the dedication with gladness, with thanksgiving and with singing, with cymbals, harps, and lyres. And the sons of the singers gathered together from the district surrounding Jerusalem and from the village of the Netaphathites also from Beth Gilgal and from the region of Geba and Asmatheth, for the singers had built for themselves villages around Jerusalem. And the priests and the Levites purified themselves, and they purified the people and the gates and the wall. Then I brought the leaders of Judah up onto the wall and appointed two great choirs that gave thanks. One went to the south on the wall, to the Dungate. And after them went Hashashiah and half of the leaders of Judah, Azariah, Ezra, Meshulam, Judah, Benjamin, Shemaiah, and Jeremiah, and certain of the priests' sons with trumpets, Zechariah, the son of Jonathan, son of Shemaiah, son of Mataniah, son of Micaiah, son of Zechur, son of Asaph, and his relatives, Shemaiah, Azarel, Malali, Galali, Mai, Nathaniel, Judah, and Hanani, with the musical instruments of David, the man of God. And Ezra the scribe went before them. At the fountain gate they went up straight before, before them by the stairs of the city of David at the ascent of the wall above the house of David to the water gate on the east. The other choir of those who gave thanks went to the north and I followed them with half of the people on the wall above the tower of the ovens to the broad wall and above the gate of Ephraim and by the gate of Yeshanah and by the fish gate and the tower of Hananel and the tower of the hundred to the sheep gate, and they came to a halt at the gate of the guard. So both choirs of those who gave thanks stood in the house of God, and I and half of the officials with me. And the priests, Elikim, Messiah, Maniamin, Micaiah, Elonai, Zechariah, and Hananiah with trumpets, Messiah, Shemaiah, Eleazar, Uzi, Johannah, Malkijah, Elam, and Ezer. And the singers sang with Jezriah as their leader. And they offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced. For God had made them rejoice with great joy. The women and children also rejoiced. And the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. On that day, men were appointed over the storerooms, the contributions, the first fruits, and the tithes to gather into them the portions required by the law for the priests and for the Levites according to the fields of the towns. For Judah rejoiced over the priests and the Levites who ministered, and they performed the service of their God and the service of purification, as did the singers and the gatekeepers, according to the command of David and his son Solomon. For long ago, in the days of David and Asaph, there were directors of the singers, and there were songs of praise and thanksgiving to God. And all Israel in the days of Zerubbabel and in the days of Nehemiah gave the daily portions for the singers and the gatekeepers, and they set apart that which was for the Levites. And the Levites set apart that which was for the sons of Aaron. This is God's word. You can have a seat. Good morning, everybody. My name is Craig, one of the elders here. Thankful to open God's word with you again today. I was thinking as I was just walking up here, um, I don't really have much of an introduction here, but I was just thinking about how 
this is a very perspective-giving event in the life of Israel, and how it actually mirrors um, the moments that are coming up for us soon as a church. Um, in a in a few weeks, we're not too far away. Little, well, let's see, about six or seven weeks from now is ten years of Christ's community existing. There's going to be a lot to celebrate, a lot to remember. It's good. Those moments of um, celebration and remembrance are good for us as followers of Jesus Christ because they help us to remember, to look back and remember God's faithfulness to us. And that's what we see going on here in Nehemiah chapter 12. It's a moment where they get to, uh, it's a moment of dedication. They're dedicating this wall. What Nehemiah has really all been been about from the very beginning that we've been studying it is building this wall around the city of Jerusalem. But they have a moment where they get to look back and see and remember God's faithfulness to them, and they rejoice in that. That's what we're gonna. That's what we're gonna see today. And what's interesting is, hopefully, Lord willing, we're gonna be able to do that as a as a faith family too. I know some of you guys are new, some of you are recent additions to Christ Community, but you're you're part of what God is doing here in this church and through this church in the community. It doesn't matter if you've been here for from the very beginning, part of that core team, or if you've been here for this is your first time ever. You're part of what God is doing here in this city, here in these people, and through these people in the community around us. Praise the Lord. You're part of something so much bigger than yourself. That's been, again, one of the big themes from Ezra and Nehemiah is we're part of this great story that God is writing. And who are we that he would bring us into what, he's, what he is doing in the world? Man, praise the Lord. Let's get a little context. We'll dive in to Nehemiah chapter 12. It's a big moment, a moment of dedication for the wall. It's a celebration. It's a party. It's an outdoor music festival. It's a parade. All these things kind of wrapped into one. A worship service. Um, before we actually look at what they did, and which is what Paul just read for us in Nehemiah chapter 12, what I want to do is I want to take a step back and remember. Um, because I want to a- answer a question before we get to what they actually did. Why was the completion of the wall such a big deal? Why was what we're reading here in, in the second half of Nehemiah chapter 12, why, is it, why did it mean all these people had to come and all this stuff had to happen and all this music? In other words, we're asking and we're answering this question. What's the big deal? Why gather and rejoice? And that's going to have some really direct application to our, to our lives. Um, I'm going to pray for the Lord's help right now. Lord, we do need you. And I do pray that as we remember your faithfulness to Israel, that you would help us to remember your faithfulness to us. I pray that you'd help us to do that today and that it would spark in us great joy. And I just want to ask, even from the outset, Lord, um, because I feel it in my own soul this morning, we know that joy is a gift from you. Joy is given by you. And we ask that you would give it to us today in abundance by the power of your Spirit, through your Word. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so just thinking again, why are they gathering to, why are they gathering to rejoice like this? Why, why is this such a big deal? Um, and so really what, what I'm trying to do is look back in Nehemiah. Look back over chapters 1 through 11. I'll just give you three reasons. You can probably come up with more, but here are three reasons that stuck out to me. One, this is the first reason. The wall, the building of the wall was orchestrated by God. When we first encountered Nehemiah, this is all the way back in chapter 1, he heard that the wall around Jerusalem was destroyed and that the people were in big trouble. He wept, 
He fasted, he prayed, and he was asking God to do something. And then, I was thinking of it kind of like in a movie, a camera angle that was zooming out. Like if the camera is zoomed in on Nehemiah, the camera angle just kind of zooming out, zooming out, taking in more and more of the scene around him, we begin to see that God had already been setting in motion circumstances long before Nehemiah had ever even heard about the circumstances in Jerusalem at that time. Nehemiah was a cupbearer to the king. God wanted him there. And God answered his prayers. He gave him favor before that king. And God moved the king's heart to not only let him go, but to supply everything he needed for the rebuilding of the wall. And I I was just thinking about it this week. That would be similar to someone nearby physically or in proximity relationally to the ruler of North Korea, Kim Jong-un. He's nearby or she is nearby and turning to him, that ruler, one day and saying to Kim Jong-un, the city and the church in my hometown are destroyed. They were destroyed in some wars and I want to go and rebuild them. And then Kim Jong-un says, how long are you going to be gone? And uh, I want to pay for it. It's crazy. This is incredible that this happened. So Nehemiah gets this favor from God through the king. Excuse me. He goes to Jerusalem, and what happens? They face all kinds of opposition. It doesn't just end there. It's not smooth sailing. It's opposition from around them. You remember there were three guys, I referred to them as the unholy trinity. Uh, Sambalat, Tobiah, and uh, Geshem. They try to undermine Nehemiah's authority. They try to make the people fear. They actually threaten physical violence against them. And not only opposition from around them, opposition from within. Some of the Israelites start taking advantage of each other in these sticky situations, the tricky circumstances that they're in. They want to take advantage of the people for their own gain. Nevertheless, the work continues. Everyone pitches in. Often they're operating outside of their giftedness. Um, you got the perfumer and the, uh, the priests, and they're all swinging hammers next to each other on this wall. They're just trying to get that wall, wall up. It took sacrifice, it took sweat, and in just 52 days... It had sat unfinished for decades, and in 52 days, the wall was done. It was clearly a work orchestrated by God, a miracle. And so that's the first reason them gathering was so important, to remember that God had orchestrated this wall. It was a miracle of God, a work of God. Here's the second one. The wall was an Ebenezer. I was writing this uh, sermon on Friday, um, and I thought, I'm going to check and see what songs we're singing this week. I had no idea we were going to sing Come Thou Found. We all sung about an Ebenezer earlier this morning, right? Here I raise my Ebenezer. Hither by thy help I've come. The concept of Ebenezer, maybe you've sung that before, maybe you don't know what it means, maybe you absolutely know what it means. The concept of Ebenezer comes from 1 Samuel chapter 7. This is long before Nehemiah, or the exile to Babylon, or really before Israel even had a king. Samuel was a judge at that time. He was a prophet of God, but he was also a judge. Kind of like a pseudo-spiritual political leader. And at that time, Israel, in a similar way that we've seen with Ezra and Nehemiah, in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah, they gathered to rededicate themselves with the guidance of Samuel to the Lord. And as they gathered to renew the covenant with God to remember who they were in relation to him and who he was in relation to them, the Philistines, their enemies, heard about it. 
and they attacked them. The Philistines attacked Israel. Well, Samuel prayed, God responded, and long story short, God saved him. The Philistines were defeated. So Samuel, in, in 1 Samuel 7, he, he, to mark that moment where God had saved them, where God had been faithful and carried them through, he took a stone and he set it up as a type of monument, a marker, a reminder. And he called it Ebenezer. Ebenezer, that word means stone of help. Here's 1 Samuel 7, verse 12. It should be on the screens there. Then Samuel, so this is after the battle, after God had rescued Israel. 1 Samuel 7, verse 12. Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mitzpah and Shen and called its name Ebenezer. For he said, Till now the Lord has helped us. Remember the line again? Here, here I raise my Ebenezer. Hither by thy help I've come. It's a physical sign, that rock, that Ebenezer. It's a physical sign that says to this point the Lord has been faithful to us. And that's what the wall does too. To this point the Lord has been faithful to us. When the wall's done, Nehemiah said this. This is Nehemiah chapter 6, verses 15 and 16 if you want to look at it with me. He says, it says in, in Nehemiah chapter 6, So the wall was finished in 52 days. And when all our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were deeply, were, I'm sorry, were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem. For they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. God was their help. This wall was their Ebenezer. That's the reason, that's another reason to rejoice. Third reason. Last one I'll mention here. The building of the wall was a resurrection. Let me read to you again the description of the wall when Nehemiah saw it. So this is all the way back in Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 13. Nehemiah said this, I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. Broken down, destroyed by fire. Verse 17, he says, I said to them, you see the trouble we're in? How Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. And when the opposition mocked them as they built the wall, they said this in Nehemiah 4, verse 2. I think this one will be on your screens. What are these feeble Jews doing? So these are the words of the enemies of Israel. They're mocking the, the Israelites as they rebuild the wall. What are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burned ones at that? For all practical, practical purposes, the wall was dead. Broken down stones, burnt gates, rubble. It was destroyed. But God, from beginning to end, We've highlighted it a couple times already today, but he breathed life into this thing. The whole thing. God fueled Nehemiah's passion and he grabbed the hearts of the leaders of Israel and he empowered all of Israel to work together to build that wall. And God revived those dead stones and they became a wall. A wall of protection and provision and life for his people. So, as they gathered together, they were remembering lots of different things, but three things that I just wanted to draw out from the beginning as we're thinking about this passage. They gathered together to remember that God, that the wall was orchestrated by God. 
that the wall was an Ebenezer. Up to this point, the Lord has helped us. And they, they were gathered to rejoice because the wall was a resurrection. They gathered to remember and to respond to these realities with great rejoicing. They had good, significant reasons to rejoice, right? These are very significant things that God has done for them. But if you are a Christian, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, we, you and I, we have so much more reason to rejoice this morning. I realize um, that what I'm saying that, and I prayed this way at the beginning too, that for some of us, when we hear uh, when we hear somebody say you have reason to rejoice, it feels like a welcome encouragement, maybe a welcome exhortation to rejoice. Yeah, I do have reason to rejoice, and you kind of grab hold of it, and you you latch onto it, you like it. But for some of us, it can feel almost offensive. In my current circumstances, rejoice. In my difficulties, my pain. Life is complex. The Bible speaks of life that way. Praise the Lord. The Bible never speaks of joy or happiness in a, in a kind of a Hallmark movie, sentimental kind of way. Paul, the apostle, describes himself as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. For those of you who are facing sorrows this morning, I hope that as we think about reasons to rejoice, these reasons that Israel rejoiced and the, the reasons that we have to rejoice as Christians, that those reasons to rejoice come alongside the sorrows and remind you again of how loved you are in Him, how faithful He is to you, how you are not alone. God orchestrated the work to build the wall. How much more, though, has God orchestrated His work to be done in you, in your life? Brothers and sisters in Christ, you are a work of the Sovereign Lord. Not only in His creation of you, but He has reached into your life. If you've trusted Him for the forgiveness of sins, He has reached into your life and rescued you from sin and death, eternal death. He has orchestrated this work and, and maybe you can even remember your own story, the specific steps and the aspects, the people, the places, the things that happened to you to bring you to know the living God for whom you were created. He did that for you. His hand is on your life. And maybe it's not the way that you would like it. Maybe it's not going the way that you think it should. But the Lord of all creation is at work in you. And that is a reason to greatly rejoice. Here's the second reason. God gave Israel an Ebenezer to remember his faithfulness. But, but how much more do we, as Christians, have reason to be thankful for his faithfulness to us through the signs that he has given us? What signs? What signs has he given us of his faithfulness to us? The cross where Jesus died for you and for me. The empty tomb where he defeated death for you, where you will follow after him and never die. And His Holy Spirit that lives in you. His power in you. Jesus' promise is that He's never going to leave you or forsake you. 
He did that. He never has. He has never left you. He has never forsaken you. All the way through the grave and out to eternal life. And he will never, for all eternity, fail you. He will never leave you. So much so that he has put his, his seal, his Holy Spirit on your heart. His very presence in you that will never leave you. God helped Israel rebuild a wall from the dead, so to speak, to resurrect that wall. But how much more, and this is the third thing, has God raised us who are dead in our sins to life with him? Ephesians 2.1 says this, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Every human being on the planet is dead in sin. And this doesn't mean that we're thrashing about hoping for a, a spiritual life preserver to be tossed to us in this pool of sin that we're drowning in. This means that we are dead, flatlined. But God did this. This is Ephesians 2, 4 and 5. I think it's on your screen. But God, we were dead. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Not a dead wall. Not a dead soul in you. You are alive. You are raised from the dead because of Christ. The wall of Jerusalem, this is kind of what I'm getting at. The wall of Jerusalem is a great work, but it points to the greater work of God through Christ in you. His sovereign work in you. His faithfulness to you. His resurrection of you. So what does the celebration look like? That's what this passage is about. It kind of details the, the, the celebration. I'm just going to run through it real quick. First, they gather and purify the religious leaders. Um, they kind of had to get them from the countryside and bring them in. That's actually pretty common. They were out farming. They kind of had a, they had a rotation where they would come into the city and serve in the temple, and then they would go out and do farming with their family. They wanted everybody, all hands on deck. They wanted to get all the religious leaders into the city for this great moment. They called all of them back. They got them ready to serve. Then Nehemiah takes all the people that were gathered there, these, these leaders, and he divides them into two groups, two bands of praise. And he puts them, he has them go up on top of the wall. And they go in opposite directions around, uh, around the wall, on top of the wall. And, which is interesting because as they were building the temple, one of those guys who was insulting them, who was opposing them, um, said this. What are they building? If a fox goes up on it, on the wall, he will break down their stone wall. And now, they've got two large groups circling that wall. Praise God. They offer sacrifices. Well, as they go around, they meet at the temple. And there at the temple, they offer sacrifices. And they rejoice with joy that God gave them. And then finally, they, the last part of the chapter, they establish provision for those temple workers. They want that worship to continue. They provide for those people. And specifically for those who make the music, who lead the temple, and who make sacrifices for the people's sin. So, what do we take away from this? They're there to remember what God has done for them. They're there to celebrate what God has done. And this is the way that they did it. How are we here in Urbana, 2021, what are we supposed to take away from the way they celebrated? I just want to draw out three things for us this morning, and that's it. First, 
the power of music. Multiple times in this passage, we see music not only mentioned, but stressed, emphasized as important to the worship of God. Verses 28 and 29, Nehemiah lists out some of the singers. Verse 42, he tells us who directs the choir. Verse 46, he reminds us that at the time of David and Asaph, the people provided for the musicians so that they could make and lead beautiful music that inspired praise and thanks to God. It's not the only part of worship, right? But it is in the mind of, at least here in the mind of Nehemiah, and really throughout the whole Bible, I would argue, um, music does play a prominent role in the worship of God. So, so why, would they, why would they emphasize music here? Like they could have emphasized it during the covenant renewal, they could have emphasized it in other ways, at other points in this story with Nehemiah. Why emphasize it here? Well, here in Nehemiah and, and throughout Scripture, and really I think in our own experience, music is a means of shaping the heart and the mind. Both things, the heart and the mind. It engages our hearts and our minds. It engages the ways that we feel and the way that we think. At this moment in Israel's history, disappointment and discontent could come rushing in. This isn't the Jerusalem that it once was. It wasn't even really rebuilt right here. The temple isn't all that awesome, not like it used to be. And the wall isn't all that awesome, not like it used to be. And there's no king. There's no king here. But God is still with them. This is what God is doing in their lives at this moment. He is working. And what music does in this moment for Israel is it helps them align their heart and their mind with that truth. And it brings about joyful thanksgiving. Augustine said that we sing the truth into our hearts. You sing the truth into your heart. Beth Moore said this, singing helps. Even if your singing needs help, singing helps. Lift your voice to the Lord. He has been so good to you. When no one else showed up, there he was. When no one else noticed, he never took his eyes off you. Sing. It'll change your mood and that'll change your day. I watched a performance this week um, by a woman named Jane Marcheski. In, and she was performing on America's Got Talent. I am not an America's Got Talent kind of guy. I don't really watch that show. Uh, but it was, this, this performance was lighting up the, the Christian blogosphere. So I, I wanted to see what it was all about. She's 30 years old. And she's likely going to die of cancer soon. She has a 2% chance of survival. She sang a song called, It's Okay. And, and that performance was gripping. I mean, if you know Simon Cowell, he's this uh, crotchety mean man. That man had tears in his eyes as she was singing. And in the end, what he did is he hit the, the golden buzzer. I had to look it up to understand what that actually meant. The golden buzzer, this is kind of like advanced her to the final rounds. Here's something that Jane, the singer wrote on her blog talking about praying for healing. I remind myself that I'm praying to the God who let the Israelites stay lost for decades. They begged to arrive in the promised land, but instead he let them wander, answering prayers they didn't pray. For 40 years, their shoes didn't wear out. Fire lit their path each night. 
Every morning he sent them mercy bread from heaven. I look hard for the answer to my for the answers to the prayers that I didn't pray. The song she sang, she also wrote that song, It's Okay. It's the story, she she said it's her story. So how can it be okay if she's dying? If what I read about her is true, it's because she clings to Jesus. Then why would you sing it? Why would you sing to yourself, it's okay, to remind herself, to help herself believe and know what's true. Jane would have never chosen the path that she was on. Israel never would have chosen to go into exile. Israel would have never chosen to wander the wilderness for 40 years. You likely would like to change some, if not many things, about your own circumstances. Nevertheless, God is answering prayers for you that you did not pray. He is in control. So how do you bring your heart and your mind to align with that truth? That he is in control, that you can trust him, that he's going to answer the prayers you do pray and many that you will never pray. How do you bring your heart and mind to believe that? Well, one way is you sing. You play music that's true. And that's what Israel does here. And that's true for us too. That's why we sing, here I raise my Ebenezer. Because to up to this point, my help has come. That's the first thing. Here's the second one. Just observations from the way they celebrated. The importance of historically rooted faith. So when Nehemiah is spelling out all these different purification rites and the singing arrangements and the provision for the temple worship, he talks a lot about people from the past. David, Solomon, Asaph, Aaron. He's reaching back hundreds and hundreds of years. He keeps reaching back further and further. It's it's Solomon, then it's David, then it's it's Asaph, and then it's uh, Aaron. He's Aaron and Moses. Why is he doing that? I think you can make the case for uh, several reasons why he does that, but I just want to highlight one that I think is um, important to this particular context. By reaching back to Aaron and Moses, to David and Solomon and Asaph, it's once again the picture that Israel's lives, the lives, the things that they're a part of, are being joined to something that God has been doing for a long time. What they experienced in the rebuilding of the wall is connected to a long stream of God's work going back to Solomon and David and Asaph and Aaron and Moses and on and on. It's connected. It's linked. If God was faithful then, he will continue to be faithful now and into the future. They look back to help them look forward. When I lived in Beijing... um, my family were missionaries there for uh, in China for a number of years. I had a house church pastor one time take me to it was a it was a communist party school. Um, we kind of slipped in the gate, wove our way through the compound, and back tucked in a corner um, was a little graveyard. It was a graveyard that had been there for maybe more than four hundred years, and it was the tombs of 
long ago missionaries that had come to spread the gospel in China. And there they were. It was just kind of fenced off, sitting there in that ancient city. A testimony. It felt like, whoa, here, here I am, and I'm linked to them. And they were linked to someone else, and they were linked to somebody else, someone else. We live in a home now that was once occupied by uh, a, a wonderful couple, Al and Margaret Jensen. This couple um, were longtime members at Stratford Park Bible Chapel, um, a, a church that we love. Uh, our, our forefathers, in many ways, they helped start Christ Community many years ago. Uh, Al and Margaret were legendary, so I'm told, for their kind, sincere welcomes that they gave nearly every Sunday to the people that walked in the doors. They actually greeted my wife Darcy on the first Sunday that she walked in there um, after coming down here for school. They loved the Lord to the very end. Just living in their house, I feel some sort of a connection to them. And we as a church, we have a connection to Stratford Park, those that have come long before us. And Stratford Park has a connection to those who became for them, before them, before them. If you're a Christian, whether you're new to this thing, or you grew up in this thing, it doesn't really matter. You've been brought into a family. You can link back. You can link near, like the Jensen's. Or you can go a little further back to maybe some missionaries that came to your neck of the woods long ago. Or we can link back to what everyone links back to. Our Savior Jesus. And those who became, who came before him even. Nehemiah and Ezra and David. They were looking for him. They were waiting for him. They knew he was the one that they needed. They reach back. That's what Nehemiah is doing. They reach back to that historic faith. And it helps ground them then. It gives them faith for what's ahead. The ongoing Reliable grace of God. And then here's the, the final observation, which is just really fascinating to me. How does God work in this passage? What does God do? He's the joy giver. Do you see that? Look at verse 43. And they offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced, for God had made them rejoice with great joy. This isn't the only place where we see God as the joy giver. Psalm 4-7 says this. You have put, so this is a, a Psalm of David, he's talking to God, he's praying. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. God put it there. Galatians 5-22, fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy. Who puts that there? The Spirit. What is joy? Big question. I read this definition. I liked it. An inner, this is what they said. An, an inner gladness. A deep-seated pleasure. It's a depth of assurance and confidence that ignites a cheerful heart. It doesn't mean the absence of sorrow. We see many examples of sorrow and joy mingled in the Bible. But it is a deep happiness. How did the joy come? Sure, some of it was circumstantial. The wall was done. They worked together. The singing definitely helps. We just talked about that. 
But it says that God put the joy in them. His word says that he does that for us. So what does that mean? What does that mean for you and for me? It means we don't serve a God who is a taskmaster, authoritarian, heavy-handed tyrant. We serve a joyful God. And it means that in his sovereign goodness, he will actually pour his joy into your heart. His spirit gives it to you. Even when it feels like you don't have any strength in you to do it, to accept it, to know how to get it. C.S. Lewis said, Joy is the serious business of heaven. The Westminster Catechism, it starts by saying that our chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. We've seen a couple times in Nehemiah already how serious God is about joy. The joy of the Lord is their strength. But how serious is God about your joy? How does, that, how does that apply to you? How has God given you joy? God is so serious. He's so committed to your joy that He entered the deepest depths of sorrow and suffering for you. Jesus bore our griefs and carried our sorrows. And by His wounds, we have been healed. Jesus' suffering for us opens the door for our true and deep joy. Something that can never be taken away. Tim Keller says this, There is a joy available that the deepest grief cannot put out. No circumstance or person can take away the joy that God gives. Jesus went into the deepest sorrows so that you could have joy forever from God. Even when you feel like you don't have any strength to have it. Even when you don't know where it's going to come from. You can go to God, your exceeding joy, and receive it from Him. That's the offer we have through Jesus Christ. And the joys on this side of heaven are always going to be tainted with sorrows. But there will come a day where there will be unending joy. Where in His presence, we will be in the fullness of joy forever. As you face sorrows and trials and difficulties, disappointments on this side of heaven, we can know that the best is yet to come because of what Jesus has done. So remember, remember his sovereign work in you. Remember his faithfulness to you. Remember his resurrection of you. Remember the long line of faith that you have been linked to, brought into. And remember especially Jesus and what he's done for you. He drank the cup of the wrath of God so that you could drink the, pres- drink the wine of joy in God's presence forever. God did that for you because he wanted you. He wanted you to be in his everlasting joy. That, that is something to sing about. That is something to rejoice in. Let's pray. Lord, help us to, help us to receive again today from your word what you'd have for us. I just pray that you speak to my brothers and sisters right now by the power of your spirit through your word. That you would send your spirit to bring and awaken joy in us. Help us to remember all the ways you've been faithful to us individually. Faithful to us as a church. Lord, we do ask that um, that you would be glorified in our rejoicing today. 
Help us to sing. Help us to dance. Help us to be amazed again at all that you are and all that you've done for us. Thank you, Jesus, for bearing our griefs and sorrows so that we can have everlasting joy. It's in your name we pray. Amen.